Well, welcome everyone. It's really good to see you. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Ryan Smith. I serve as one of the pastors here at Collective. Uh, as Scott just mentioned, we've been making our way through John's Gospel uh, as, a, as a way of kind of preparing our hearts and our community for Holy Week coming up. So again, like Scott mentioned, we've got Palm Sunday next week, our Good Friday service, and Easter in two weeks. And so uh, out of a desire for us not to kind of just get to Easter and have it be another Sunday, the hope has been that as we spend time through John's recounting and retelling of the life of Jesus, specifically looking at these I am statements in John's gospel where Jesus declares these identity statements about himself, that they might help us kind of prepare and get ready for what we're coming into with Easter. And so we've looked at, um, in the first week, Jesus' crazy statement that before Abraham, the ancient um, you know, father of the Jewish faith, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. We looked at Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. A couple weeks ago, I am the gate of the kind of the sheep pen. And then last week, Jesus' lines on, I am the good shepherd. And, and what's been fascinating for me in not just teaching but studying these passages is how all of these identity statements about Jesus, when he claims something about himself, he also intuits, he also says something about us. So in saying, I am the light of the world, Jesus right alongside there talks about our need for light, for illumination, for enlightenment, that we currently, presently are, are living in the, in the dark. We have a hard time finding our way. In, in saying, I am the bread of life, he's intuiting something about the deep hunger within us, about the good shepherd is our need for someone to care, provide, and guide us through this life. Every I am statement has been as much about the identity of Jesus as ours as well. And so today... We're coming to um, our next I am statement from Jesus and and finding ourselves with what is often seen as one of the most uh, challenging, uh, um, exclusive uh, statements of Jesus, which is, as I hope you'll see, unfortunate because it's meant to be some of the most comforting words that Jesus gives in all of John's gospel, taking us deep into the heart of what it means to be the people of Jesus, uh, to be the people of I am. And so with that being said, if you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, turning your, tapping your way there. We also have um, Bibles at the back of the room. So if you don't have a a Bible to call your own, um, those are there not just for our gatherings, but for you to take and use while you're here, but then also to take with you and and have as your own little Bible. But um, once you're there to John chapter 14, would you join me in standing, if you're able, for the reading of the scriptures today? John chapter 14, Jesus is here with his disciples, worth a little note here because we've been jumping around chapters, is Jesus is here at the Last Supper with his disciples. So this is in the context now of he's washed the disciples' feet, they've had his kind of, you know, kicking off of the Last Supper conversations here, and this is the context where Jesus looks around the table and says to his disciples the night before his arrest and his crucifixion, he says... Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, 
Thomas said. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to gather this morning. God, these, this language of the way and the truth and the life, um, and specifically Jesus' line that no one comes to you apart from him, uh, can be seen as, as so exclusive. And yet here we are at the, some of the deepest moments of Jesus providing comfort for his people. And so I pray that we would hear these words as what they were intended to be heard. Comfort us today. And we pray. Amen. Well, the story opens in verse one with Jesus saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, in maybe different seasons of our lives and different times, like within human history, you know, I could probably get up here and, you know, ask, has your heart ever been troubled? Like, do you know what it's like to have your heart troubled? Um, But I just, as a pastor of this community, like some of you that are new, welcome, but knowing many of the faces here and the stories that are represented, for me to ask, the question is not, is your heart troubled, but where, and how much, and why? Like just looking around this room and knowing the stories that are represented here, there are some of you that have lost parents over the past year. There are some of you that have lost children over the past year. There are some of you that have been walking through addiction within your family over the past year. Some of you that are having relationships fall apart. Some of you that are going through just the uncertainty of being at this stage of your life and not knowing what comes next. To ask is your heart, the question is not, is your heart troubled? It's where and why. The language of uh, troubled there in the Greek that John was writing in is, um, it's used to talk about something that's been stirred or shaken up. Uh, One, one, you know, uh, dictionary puts it as, um, to be troubled is to undergo acute emotional distress. So the question isn't, have you ever been troubled? The question is, where? You see, one of the main pains that come when we find ourselves in those moments of our hearts being troubled is we're prone to think that we're alone in this feeling. And that's why I love that the disciples are feeling this experience with us. They're troubled. But what are they troubled for? Well, remember, like I said, that John 14, what comes right before it is John 13. And in John 13... Jesus is there with his disciples, and he begins to have a conversation with them, and he outlines three things that have set up why the disciples are so troubled. In John 13, he first talks about how one of you is going to betray me. As the story goes on, we know it to be Judas, but at this point, they're all looking around the room going, is it you? Is it you? Is it him? Or even, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray Jesus? Right after this, he talks about how Peter, the, the oldest of the disciples, kind of what Jesus called him, the rock of the group of the disciples, he says that Peter is going to deny me not once but three times. Think about that. When you're in a community or a friendship group, there's always tends to be somebody who's kind of like the center, the rock of that little like community and relationship. And Jesus says, that's the one that's going to betray. And then right after all of this, Jesus then says, I am going away. He tells the disciples, I'm going away and you won't be able to come with me. So just think about this. Most uh, scholars, what we know about the, uh, though all the pictures, you know, portray all of the disciples as being guys with beards walking around, we know that they are in the age range between 13 to 30, with Peter most likely being the oldest, but most of the disciples being high school and college age boys. 
So think about this. You have this, young, this group of 12 young men who have given up their families. They've given up their careers. Peter has left his, his wife for this whole period of traveling with Jesus. They've given up on the status quo. They've laid down everything to follow Jesus. And here they are at the Passover dinner, and he goes, bye. <laughs> of course they'd be there. Jesus, we laid down everything for you, and now you're, you're piecing out. You're taking off. And you won't even tell us where you're going? Acute emotional distress, right? Even more than that, what I love is in uh, chapter 12 and 13, we find that not only do the disciples have troubled hearts, but Jesus himself does. <laughs> Jesus, as he begins to un- realize, or maybe not realize, but, but come to terms with the fact that the cross is, is, is no longer years or months or weeks, but days away for him. It talks about how his spirit in chapter 12, his spirit became troubled, stirred, shaken, disturbed. And then following that in chapter 13, right before he testifies that one of you is going to betray me, talking about Judas, it says that his soul was stirred, shaken, disturbed, troubled. So although you may feel alone this morning in your troubled heart, in your acute emotional distress, the good news is that the 12 disciples and even Jesus himself feels the same, maybe not over the same reasons, but the same emotions that you feel. But the question that Jesus is going to move into is, what do you do with those feelings? What do you do with your acute emotional distress? What do you do when you're stirred and shaken? What do you do when your heart's troubled? For some of us, we, you know, guilty here, look for clarity in the situation. In the midst of the troubles that I'm going through, if I can discern what's going on and piece it all together, then I'll be able to move forward and I'll have the right decision, the right thing to do to get forward, to make it out. So we'll figure out the plan with the right information and the right way forward. Some of you don't look you know, for, for uh, clarity, but you just like, you like the name it and claim it kind of a thing. That like, my God is for me. I'm claiming victory over this situation. Or maybe you're not a Christian, so you're gonna manifest like a good way out of this situation, right? So it's like, I'm not gonna you know, figure out and get the right information, but I'm gonna claim some kind of power to get myself through that. And then others of you just give up and you cope. You're just like, I'm just gonna numb myself through this season of trouble and suffering, and uh, maybe I'll come out of this when things get a little bit easier. But the kind of spoiler alert is that things don't ever really get easier. We just kind of move from trouble to trouble in this life, don't we? So what do you do? Whether it's looking for clarity or you're coping or... You're claiming something. See, all of these are at some level revolved around trying to control the trouble, the stirring up, the shaking that we're feeling. But what does Jesus say in verse one? After saying, don't let your hearts be troubled, he says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, this translation of the word believe makes it sound like Jesus is slapping your troubles with a theological answer, right? Doesn't it? Like, it's the kind of like, let go and let God slap kind of a thing. Like, just believe in me, bud. You know, slap on the shoulder or on the hind end, and like, let's get back out there into your troubling. You got this. The believe language is not what's going on there. Um, Jesus isn't slapping theology on your, on your suffering. Though, though, I mean, honestly, he could, as a side note, just notice here once again the identity, the self-identity of Jesus, who he understands himself to be, is he claims for the same level of belief and allegiance as the Father here. You notice that? Or is that just something that Jesus isn't slapping theology on your problem, but the theology here is really interesting, right? So this word that uh, John's writing in, the Greek for believe, can be translated as just trust. In the midst of your troubles, trust. Brennan Manning translates trust as childlike surrender. 
midst of your suffering, in the midst of your troubled heart, trust. In speaking of Brennan Manning, his book, uh, Ruthless Trust, he tells the story of this brilliant ethicist by the name of John Cavanaugh, who had the opportunity to go and serve with Mother Teresa in Calcutta in the House of the Dying for a handful of months. And uh, once he gets out there, on the first day, he gets to meet Mother Teresa. And so he's, you know, and she goes, gets to know his name, and what, what can I do for you? And I mean, what would you ask Mother Teresa to do for you? He chose the right thing. He said, will you pray for me? And so she goes, well, what, what can I pray for? And so here you have specifically what brought him out here to Calcutta all the way to Mother Teresa was he was at a point of his heart being troubled, specifically at a point in his life where he didn't know what to do next and where to go. And it wasn't just kind of a like, what am I gonna do? It was you know midlife crisis kind of a stuff. Like, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know where to go. And so out of this, he comes all the way over from America to Calcutta to ask the question, then she's gonna pray for him. And so what is the prayer request that he gives to Mother Teresa is, would you pray that I have clarity? She looks at him dead in the face and says, no, I'm not gonna pray for that. He says, why not? He goes, you don't need clarity. John Kavanaugh goes, well, you talk, You have clarity. Like when I look at your ministry, you, you're walking in clarity. You always have known just what to do. And she goes, I've never had clarity. But what I've always had is trust. So I will pray that you trust. And moves on from there. Like the, whether the John Kavanaugh story so wonderfully pictures it, I think so many of us in the midst of our trouble, we're looking for clarity. We're looking for a coping mechanism. We're looking for some spiritual power or something to claim to get us out of the troubles. And the invitation of Jesus here, mirrored in the language of Mother Teresa, is what you need most is to trust God and trust also in Jesus. But trust, like things like faith, or hope, or love, you can't self-generate trust. You know what I mean by that? You can't self-will trust. I can't make myself trust in something. Trust is a response to an experience of something, which leads us into where Jesus goes next. This is the connecting point. Trust in God, and we go, okay, what are we trusting you for, or in, or why are we trusting you? Which is where he picks up in verse two of chapter 14. In my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Now, a few things to notice. First, right after the Father's house, many rooms line is notice Jesus is like, okay, trust in me. And then he he almost like roots his call for trust in their experience of him. Where he goes, if it were not so, would I have told you, you know, where I am going and what I'm going to do? So he's going, you guys, can, you guys know me. You can trust me. I'm Jesus. Like, you guys have an experience with me. I'm not lying to you about this. But then the question that remains is, what's the Father's house? With many rooms? And Jesus is going to prepare a place to come back and then take you to the Father's house? What is it, right? So if you're like me and you grew up uh, in the church, there's this really bad youth group song that some of you probably, you're laughing, some of you are laughing because you know. Uh, It's like, come and go with me to my father's house, see father's house, come and go with me. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. There's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. There's a big, big yard where we can play. See? So everyone that did that, we're all in therapy, working through this and counseling most likely for some level of church hurt. The rest of you are like, you guys are great, so don't worry about it. 
So, okay, so just notice that what's that song about, though? It's not about, yeah, it's about football. <laughs> That's most uh, Midwest youth group stuff. It's like, what's this about? Is this Jesus or football? Um, so, so, but here's the thing. Okay, so what's, what is the Father's house that we're singing about? Heaven. Heaven. Thank you, Scott. Man, Bomberito Sunday, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> It's about heaven, right? Which is kind of weird when you think about this is a song that a bunch of kids are singing together. Like, let's all go die and go to heaven. This is like some weird thing, that, right? So we, but we think it's about heaven, right? How many of you, when, when we read through this, you thought that's what Jesus was talking about, my father's house? Okay, now here's the fun thing. And, and I know it because I'm a millennial with you. We love deconstructing. So we're gonna deconstruct this right now by asking some questions, okay? So let's just notice here, um, well, how do we wanna go about this? Um, well, let's just, let's just start with the first thing. Um, heaven is never referred to any other place in all of Scripture as, as, my, as Jesus is the Father's house. Never referred to that. So that's like one, like, hmm, okay, interesting. Similarly, all throughout this section of Jesus' speech, he never elsewhere talks about anything about where you go when you die or even about like new creation and when Jesus returns kind of stuff. That's not what Jesus is focused on or talking about. So, hmm, right? Um, Let's go back to the Father's house thing. So it's not used to talk about heaven. Well, what is the Father's house used to talk about? John chapter two, Jesus is turning over the tables of money lenders. And he starts chastising them. And he says, you've turned my Father's house into a den of thieves. What's the Father's house there? The, the temple. The temple. The Father's house is the temple. It's where God dwells with humanity in like a physical place. The temple, which was a pattern of what was laid down in the tabernacle, which was seen as a recapturing of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. When we talk, when Jesus is talking about the Father's house, he's tapping into God dwelling with his people here on earth with you and God together. It's not about you going somewhere. It's about what God is doing down here. So then what about the language of all the rooms, right? It's the Father's house, or the King's James Version translated as many, in my Father's house are many mansions. So you had a lot of like King James people that thought they were getting mansions in heaven. And it was just a weird translation from Latin. Like mansions just means like dwelling space. And so it's like, man, I want, that sounds like hell to me actually. Like a bunch of like McMansions that we all live in, like just empty houses by ourselves. Just like staring off in the distance. Um, so notice, okay, so Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. So we've already uploaded the Father's house that Jesus isn't referring to is necessarily heaven, but dwelling in the presence of the Father, right? So then what's the language of the rooms? The word translated rooms here in the Greek, I'm sorry, we're, I know some of you guys, this is like Bible minute. I promise this is gonna be worth it, okay, when we reconstruct everything, I promise. So bear with me. The word rooms here is only used twice in all of the New Testament, which means it's kind of an interesting word. And the only other place it's used is in the same chapter, right? In verse 23. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That Greek word translated as rooms is that word right there. We will make our home with him. We will make our room with him. So the language of room isn't about a physical space. It's about a dwelling within and with another. So in my father's house are many rooms might be better understood that Jesus is saying is in the presence of the father, there is space for all of you. Petrified disciples 
shaking in your boots right now. There's plenty of room in the Father's presence for you. So then we ask, well, where, what is this whole thing then about Jesus going to prepare a place? He's going to go to prepare and then come again and take. Well, where's he going in just a few hours? To the cross. So he's going to prepare a place for you in the Father's presence. And the way he's going, that preparation is him going to the cross. So Jesus is not like a, you know, a heavenly maid going to like make the beds and put like chocolates on your pillow in heaven here. He's saying, what I've come to do is to bring you back into temple, Garden of Eden life. And so I, like the high priest, am going to lay down my life to prepare the way so that you can follow after me into the Garden of Eden, into the Holy Holies, into the Father's house, into dwelling with God once again. I'm going to prepare the way for you. And once I do that, I lay down my life in death, I'm gonna come back to you, it's his resurrection. And then he says, and I'm going to take you to myself. And that word take is, so I know, Bible moment. Take can be translated as I will bring you to myself, I will receive you to myself. It's translated, it's used in some cases to talk about marriage. I will marry you to myself. I will unite you to myself. How does he do this? Chapter 14, verse 16. Just a few verses later, Jesus says, I think the same thing he's saying here, but with different language. Look for the coming to you reference that links the two. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, another comforter, another helper to be with you forever. That comforter, that helper, that counselor is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive the spirit because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I am coming to you. I'm going away to the cross. I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. I'm going to come back to you, and the way that I'm going to be doing that is through my Holy Spirit being in you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The Father's house language is all language that Jesus is using to talk about union with God through the work of Jesus Christ as being brought together through the work of the Holy Spirit. So all of these metaphors of like being in the Father's house, as uh, Lorenzo's gonna take us next week, is what Jesus talks about a vine and the branches that abide within one another. It's all the same language that Jesus is getting at. The great comfort for his disciples in this moment is not, hey, I know this sucks and this trouble that your heart is going through is difficult, but sweet, low, by and by, you're gonna be on clouds and harps in just a few years. <laughs> Hang in there, guys. What he's saying is, I know that it's terrifying to you that I am going away, but the whole point of me doing that is so that my ongoing presence can be with you, not just when you die, but yes and amen, but right here, right now, in the midst of your troubles, right here, right now, in the midst of your suffering and your sorrow, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this triune community of love is what you're being brought and wrapped up into. That this pre-existent community of love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dancing in divine love and creativity and passion for one another. Jesus says, I have come to not just point you up the mountain, but to bring you into that cosmic creator dance for you to find life and the way and the truth in me as I bring you into this family that's been at the root of everything and all of creation. Like that's what Jesus is here to give for you and I. 
And it's one of those things that's difficult to give any language to until you begin to taste it and experience it for yourself. For those of us that have found this, we know this to be true. You can't put language to it. Some of the best references to how to put language to this comes from Julian of Norwich. I just realized that um, this morning that both of my like references this week are from um, Catholic nuns or kind of like nuns. Um, so... I don't know what that means for today. But so Julian of Norwich, so she lived through the Black Death, um, and then there was a subsequent raise of, um, she lived through two pandemics. Um, Based off what we know about her, she became an anchoress, which is kind of like a nun light. Um, And most likely this came, some of you guys like that. You're my people. Um, And, um, but most of what we can understand of Julian's life is that she most likely was a a wife and a mother and lost her husband and her, her her children to the plague. And on the other side of that, she then took on these kind of like nun-like vows, entered into um, this church community there in Norwich. She got really sick at the age of 30 uh, to the point of almost dying. And there she had these deep moments of prayers and then reflections of these visions of, of, ba- of basically what Jesus is talking about here, the deep union of what God has come to do. And so she talks about writing about this kind of these reflections in her life uh, it comes to her most famous quote is, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. This is spoken by someone who definitely knows what it's like to have a troubled heart. Multiple pandemics, losing husband and her own children, and she has the audacity to claim, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. How do you get to that place? For her, it was a vision, an experience that carried her through her life of being wrapped up in the community of love that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To know that the whole end goal of what Jesus has come to do is to bring you into that community. And so Jesus comes not to, in a sense, rescue you from your troubles, but to redeem them. Jesus has come not to bring you out of the difficulties of this life, but to, like we see in Jesus, enter into them with the Holy Spirit, enter into them trusting and walking with the Father and allowing those moments of deep loss and suffering and pain to become the very places where resurrection life is actually able to, able to bloom. So this is what Jesus is getting at. And I think it's so much better than, you know, kids' ministry songs about a place to play football. It's you being wrapped up into the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus. And so Jesus says, this is where I'm going, and you know the way. You know the way. Thomas, like most of us right now, goes, Lord, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? It's like with Apple Maps or Waze or Google Maps or whichever one you fight over for some reason with other people as being better. Um, I'm an Apple Maps and I'm married to a Waze person. And so it's, it's delightful. Um, but think about it. The whole point is in order to get directions to go somewhere, you have to know the destination, right? So you put in, you know, we went to Point Doom yesterday with some friends. So Point Doom, you know, with Malibu. You put that in and, boop, and then it now it lays out the directions for you. And you, oh, great. PCH has two hours of traffic now. You know, that that literally happened. Um, I guess we're driving through the valley. Um, So there's the whole point, though. The destination sets how you get there. And they're saying, Jesus, this whole Father's house stuff, we're not really sure what you're talking about yet. So without knowing what that is, how can we know how to get there? Jesus says, verse 6, you know the way. 
I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, like I said, this verse has been taken out of context to be some of the most challenging. People read that as exclusionary and bigoted words of Jesus. Like, come on, Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through you? Nobody? There's millions of, to quote Oprah, there are millions of ways to be human. And you have the audacity to go, nah, I'm it? It's radically exclusive. Now, but first, like I said at the beginning, remember, we're reading a statement in context. And what Jesus is dealing with here, he's not talking to, like, Paul on Athens, dealing with Roman pagans that all other gods represented. He doesn't, there, you know, when we're writing Paul, Paul is working and talking with them. He's patient and slow and gentle, like, but he's, he's also convicted and passionate. But it's not just this black, I am the way, he's the way, the truth, and the life. <clears throat> Get out of here, like, you guys are all, my God can beat up your God kind of stuff, right? <laughs> That's not necessarily not what's happening. Jesus is looking to comfort his disciples, but so I want to come to the comfort, but I want to speak to the challenge stuff for a little bit, like the challenge of these words, because they are there, and they are exclusive. There's no dancing around Jesus saying, no one comes to the Father except through me, and through me over and over again in John's gospel is trusting in me. There's no through me apart from trusting in Jesus. So it's exclusive, but I, I so... There's a, I was thinking about this this week. There's a handful of different ways that we could talk about this right now. Because on one level, I could talk with those who might be coming from a different faith background and working to, but I don't think that's where most people in our city are today. Most of us today genuinely operate in either a leaning towards an outright, we would hold that all paths lead to God. That there's a mountain at the top and all paths lead up to him. And so you got your Jesus thing, they got their Krishna thing, they got their Baha'i thing, but we're all at the end of the day you know, down here, maybe we might call it something different, but we're all moving up the same pathway. That's what most of us would hold, largely in our kind of Western, and, and really it depends on a secular context. And so I'll just say this with all here. It's going to be two big words that might be spicy, so hear this with all gentleness on the front end. This is an incredibly arrogant and what's the other word that I wanted to use? I was really careful about choosing my words here. Patronizing, thank you. Statement that can only emerge from a Western secular culture which believes, one, an assumption that God is ultimately unknowable. That belief that God is up at the top and nobody, everybody's working towards the same thing means that whatever is up there, we don't really know. And so it, everybody must be right. Similarly, it's incredibly patronizing for for some reason, Westerners, who we decide that we're going to come in and talk to the billions of humans who have existed through our history, meditating on these texts, both from the Christian perspective, but Jewish, Islamic, like all, all these other religions that are all making objective claims to truth, the way and the life. And we go, I watched a couple of YouTube videos, and I know more than most of human history on the subject. That you guys, well, the problem is you guys didn't really understand your religion. You guys really didn't get what the, what the book was talking about. Like, genuinely, I'm trying to say this with all humility. This is what, as something as simple as saying all paths lead to God, is based upon the assumption that every other person who's out there holding that what they believe is objective is wrong. And most of them 
are parts of large communities who have actually read the texts that their, their religion holds as being sacred in some way that you haven't. We're giving their whole lives to those faith systems that you haven't. And so it's incredibly patronizing. It's incredibly a Western privileged perspective for you as a white folk to come and go, let me tell all you other people of the global south what your religion really thinks. So I'll just say that with all humility and gentleness. <laughs> tell us what you really think, Ryan. Um, because here's the thing. Every religion makes some level of, of these kinds of claims. Every, and so you, you just... The whole thing is as soon as we quit pretending that we're not all making objective claims, and as, as well as so is the all paths lead to God, that too is an objective claim, that your religions all actually don't have objective truth. So every, as long as we just need to get to the place where there is objective truth in the world, and we're all having conversations, and the goal is to have civil conversations, to learn and listen to one another, to discern and work through the facts and the figures of history and human experience to get to the bottom of what is that objective truth. And so that's some of the, the words of the challenge here that I think Jesus is getting at, that we shirk at. But the problem is, any claim, as soon as we start talking about God, we're stepping into objective reality. That the something that's beneath everything, that the someone that's beneath everything, as we would say. And so... With the challenge of Jesus here on, on these words, we've, we have to receive that that's what we're entering into. We also have to enter, well, how do I say this? Here's the other dynamic, I think, that what we also have represented here with what Jesus is saying is also something that, though these other religions might be making other objective claims, Jesus is making one that's a little bit more crazy. So all these other religions, whether it's Buddha or Krishna, would be making some kind of objective claims as to the way towards enlightenment or the way to the truth as the way up the mountain. And they might say that the other religions are, yes, working their way up the mountain, but those ones are dead ends. But we all are the, the Sherpas. We're pointing the guide up the way. And Jesus is here going, I'm not just another one of the guides pointing up the mountain. Jesus doesn't say, I'm not even the best guide to get you up the mountain. Verse 7, if you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. You know God and see God as you know me and see me. Jesus is claiming, I'm not just another route or the best route or even the only route up the mountain. I am the road down the mountain to humanity. I am, I am God coming down to humanity. I'm, so the whole goal is not you need a ladder, you need a Sherpa to get you up the mountain to heaven and divinity and some experience of the God that you were made for. What you need, how to go back to the teaching so far in this week or in this series, is because you are so hungry and starving for the bread of life, because you are so wrapped up in the darkness and need the light of the world, because you are outside of the sheep pen and you are unsafe, because you have been stolen and scattered by wolves and hired hands, you don't need someone to lead you up the mountain. You need the God on top of the mountain, whatever this mountain is now, to come down to you. And Jesus says, in me, that's what God is doing. And so all of your questions about how God feels about you, look at me. When you are in your sin and you're, it's broken, you can't seem to get out, look at the way that I treat those sorts of people in my life and you'll have your answer. When you're suffering and going through the, the loss of a loved one, look at the way that I treat Mary and Martha when they, lose, when they lost Lazarus. 
When you're looking for how, to, how, how God feels about those left to the margins and kicked to the sides by the world, look at how I am always moving to them. You wanna know about God, look at me. You wanna see God, see me. You wanna know God, know me. And so here it is. To say that all paths lead up the mountain and all religions are the same, you're just not reading Jesus. And honestly, you're not reading these other religions either. And so rather than this arrogant and patronizing claim, Jesus' invitation is, what you need most is for the God on top of the mountain that everybody's looking up and scratching their heads trying to figure out the way up, is for me to come down and to show you what it's all about. And so, yes, many religions share some of these incredible things of wisdom like the golden rule or, or moral transformation or guidance or some kind of hope in eternal life. But Jesus has the, what he, what's, what's, this is what's so profound about Jesus is all of those things he would go, yeah, to. But those are appetizers on the main course. The main course is you being brought into the Father's house. You having union with God. And so being unified with me through the Spirit, all of this going on, you, the Father being in me, and you being in like that whole thing, that is the heart of, of what I have come to do. And so moral transformation and you doing spiritual practices and praying and fasting, totally as part of this eternal life and what happens when you die and hope in the afterlife, yeah, totally. But because of this, and that is the thing that all the other religions scoff at, that someone would have the audacity to say, not that you can find your way to kind of hanging out close but pretty far away from divinity for the, roast, for the rest of the afterlife. Jesus comes, and this is the thing that sets him apart to go, I am the way that God is bringing you into his very self. Y'all, y'all, we're going Southern right now. Like this is what Jesus has come to do. This is what sets him apart. And so this is what gives him the authority to go, me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If I was just here to get you to heaven when you die, then sure, I'm sure we could figure out some other ways. But that's not what I'm here to do. I am here for the God that is the triune God to bring you into himself. And so there's no other member of this group. There's nobody else to come down and do this for you. You guys can clap. Jesus is cool. So once again, it's challenging, it's convicting. But remember, remember here, what's the whole point of why Jesus is saying all this? to comfort disciples who are shaking in their boots, who have no idea what the future holds. And Jesus comes and goes, you know the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Which is the thing that I think we, those are the three things that we need the most when we're going through troubles, when we're going through suffering. As we wrap up, let's look at these three and then we'll move into a time of response. The first is the way. One of the first things that falls apart while we look for clarity when we go through troubles is because we don't know how to, where to go now. We had all of our little nice, neat plans for our life, and then this bowling ball of suffering just obliterated it all, and we're left trying to pick up the pieces of how do we move forward in, in any of this. And Jesus goes, it's me. I am the way. I'm the way forward. I'm the way to the Father. I'm the way that you need in this moment. Similarly, with the truth, when we enter into moments and troubles of suffering, two of the things that happen most in my experience and in pastoring what I've found, when we enter into moments of acute emotional distress, the two things that we're most prone to are temptation to leave and amnesia. We're prone to forget. And so Jesus says, I am the truth. And the way that he's the truth to us is if you remember in verse 17, 
by sending us the Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth. So is Jesus the truth or is the Spirit the truth? Now you're thinking like a Trinitarian. (laughs) But Jesus says in verse 26, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, is Jesus going to send the Spirit or will the Father? Now you're thinking like a Trinitarian. (laughs) Whom the Father will send in my name, the Holy Spirit will do what? Teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've told you. Jesus says, when you've been wrapped up into this relationship with the Father, that as you go through your suffering and as you're most prone to forgetting what you know to be true and most prone to being pulled towards something other than this God, the Holy Spirit is gonna be within you, teaching you and reminding you so that you don't lose the way. And then finally, the life. Because when we go through those moments, these moments of acute emotional distress, when everything falls apart, we feel like everything has fallen apart. We feel like our life has fallen apart. It's a little death, which sets us up with all of the fear that most humans get to when they get to actually coming to the point of their death, is the absolute fear of what's on the other side. And when Jesus says, I am not just the way, the truth, and the life, what he's saying is, in me, not just for the little steps that we have to make and those little deaths that feel like moments of acute emotional distress, but in the big one in the great big one that you all will face. In me, it's resurrection life. That's the whole, one of the, one of the main reasons why I, I had to go into the holy place through the, my death on the cross, the forgiveness of sins, the defeat of Satan, sin, and death, so that I might bring you with me and be with you, not just in this life, but even as we step over this together, that you will be with me in the next. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying, in the midst of your troubles, in the midst of the things that are causing your heart to break, your mind to just melt, in the midst of you, it feels like your life falling apart, you don't have to let your heart be troubled. Because I have gone to prepare a place for you. And the place that I've gone is not a where, it's a who. As Jesus says in verse three, I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. And where is Jesus? It's wrapped up in the dance of the Father and the Spirit. And so when he says, where I am, you may be also, he's not talking about some heavenly resort. He's talking about bringing you into the very life of God that will carry over and go, not just in this life, but even through death and even in new creation. Let's move into a time of response.